back to the Winter Palace. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor and publisher of Odessa's Magazine. Today on the show, I'm happy to welcome back Al Getz from Charting the Territories, and we're going to talk about his new book, which is conveniently enough called Charting the Territories Presents the 1971-1973 Leroy McGurk, Oklahoma, Louisiana Wrestling Almanac. For those of you that don't listen to Al's podcast with John Boucher, one of the things they do is to look at a time period of the McGurk territory over its 20-plus years territory. And this book is a slice of that, looking at two specific years, as we said, 1971 to 1973, to look at the stars of the territory, how they were placed on the card, who they feuded with, and so on. As I mentioned, if you were a fan of the old baseball's Who's Who Almanac, this is the wrestling version for one particular territory. You can see all the stars that were there, the big stars like Bill Watts and Danny Hodge, and also some of the youngsters that you may not have even known ever worked for this territory, like Bob Backlund and a very young Pez Watley. Of course, the book is full of the statistics that Al has come up with on how to measure a person's placement on the card and also who they or he may have been feuding with over that time. There's also some baseball chat where we talk about Al's trip this year to visit every major league and some minor league parks. We talk about some of the the, uh, stadiums. And also, maybe more importantly, some of the wild and wacky food that stadiums now sell. And at the end, since this was recorded just after the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame ballot came out, we did a very cursory discussion about the ballot, some of the changes that are on there, including maybe the biggest deal, the inclusion of tag teams and how that may or may not affect how you vote for singles wrestlers that are still on the card. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Winter Palace. Fresh off his Yankees securing their place in the ALCS, to talk some baseball, but more importantly, to discuss his new book, I'm happy to welcome back to the show Al Getz from Charting the Territories. Like uh, I said when we started, I guess it's uh, better to have a happy baseball fan on the pod than a unhappy baseball fan on the pod. Well, yeah, there's always lots of unhappy baseball fans uh, whose uh, mood seems to be tied into whether their team wins or loses. I am not like that. And I also want to be clear, my number one team is the Braves, and they are out. But my number two team is the Yankees, and they're still alive. So a little bit of good, a little bit of bad. And, uh, you know, uh, on the uh, National League side, definitely rooting for the Padres over the dang Phillies. So maybe we'll have a Padres-Yankees World Series. And, of course, I have to go with the Yankees on that one. Well, as I said before we started, the one good thing about being a Padres fan is generally having low expectations. And while I would love to see them in the World Series, the thought of them playing the Yankees again would uh, bring back some bad flashbacks. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah. Uh, also, interesting, you know, if they do win this and go to the series, to have been able to do that without Tatis. True. It's uh, like I 
You know, that's, uh, that's, that's saying a little something right there. Or imagine what happens when they have, uh, Manny and Soto and Fernando all healthy. Man. Um, one of the things about being a fan generally of underdog teams is I always have low expectations with the Padres. I always used to say, especially when I talked to Dr. Lucha more often, uh, in the past, I used to just always tweet, I'm like, please let us just get to 500. And, like, as soon as we would get to 70 wins, like, I would start saying, okay, just just get to that line. And, you know, if they get above 500, I consider it a successful season. I'm like that way with my with my uh, soccer teams. It's like, you know, get, get enough points for relegation so that you're not going to be relegated. And then – Everything else realistically is gravy. I mean, last year with Everton going down to the wire was certainly it was certainly no fun. It was not something I had experienced in decades, and definitely like I'm always happy to sort of be a team that has an occasional success. But uh, being that close to the firing line is no fun at all. Right. Right. Yeah, so, I'm, not, I'm not much on soccer other than uh, what Ryan Reynolds and uh, the other guy are doing with Wrexham. <laughs> I guess that's how most most Americans have learned about this thing called soccer. <laughs> well, it's between that and Ted Lasso. Oh, that's true too. That's also a good. Well, thing. You know, that's that's such a funny thing because that started as a promotional ad for NBC's soccer coverage. That's it was the gimmick was him playing like an American football coach that had become a soccer coach in England. And it was just all about, it was, you know, they were jokey spots for NBC's soccer coverage. And then it morphed into a successful TV show, which is kind of funny. Oh, that's uh, sometimes, oh, that's how the Simpsons started in a way as, you know, little bumpers for Tracy Ullman and ends up being the longest running uh, sitcom in history. True. So we have the book, Al, yeah, we got a book, and I understand you have learned at least one new thing from uh, reading it so far. It is, it is. This, well, there's actually, I mean, I've learned a bunch, but it was just I was flipping through the. Uh, well, we'll get to it, but uh, so this is, um, I guess, part of your charting the territories empire to go along with the podcast. So why don't you give us the uh, give us the elevator pitch? Sure, uh, the book is called uh, Charting the Territories, presents the 1971 to 1973 Leroy McGurk, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Wrestling Almanac, which is a lot to take in, granted, but uh, it's covering, it's basically a three-year period in the life of a wrestling territory um, in a way that hasn't really been documented before. One of the things I'm most proud of is I have far and away the most comprehensive listing of house shows for the territory, and just to give you an idea, this one territory in a three-year period of time, I've got listings for 2,499 house shows, but also I believe that it's only about 85% complete. So on top of that, there's probably another 500 or so that I don't have records for. So one territory was running approximately 1,000 house shows a year, or anywhere between 800 and 1,000. Which is, yeah, I remember when you said that you were on Between the Sheets recently and you were talking about that. And you sort of sit there and do the math and you're like, okay, 
divide by 360, like three yeah. years, divide by 360. I mean, it's not surprising that, especially in the 70s, the larger territories like this and like Crockett were running, you know, multiple shows, usually three shows a night in the territories just because of how vast they were. Right, and and Crockett operated in three states, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Virginia. And the schedule wasn't such that every night there was one show in each of those three states, but as a general rule of thumb, that's a way to look at it. And the same can be said for this territory. Uh, the Culkins are the local promoters for Mississippi, and they have their own ring. And, of course, they want to run as many shows as possible. They want that ring to be used as many nights as they can. Um, Leonard Clay, who runs uh, in parts of Texas, Arkansas, and even Missouri, uh, is a local promoter for Leroy. And again, he also is running as many nights as he can. You have the crew that Grizzly Smith is running uh, in Louisiana. And then on top of that, you have the Tulsa, Oklahoma City, uh, Little Rock portion. So there's four distinct geographic areas, and there are nights when there's a show in all four of them. And there are other times when they're only running two shows in larger cities, and most of the time they're running three shows a night. I was thinking about this when I was reading this, and I don't know if I've ever talked to you about this or I've heard you discuss it on the pod, but how exactly did you decide to settle upon this territory as your sort of prime reference area that you've been doing the last couple of years? When I first started charting the territories, I, I was sort of beta testing the statistic that I created, which was the spot rating. And I was doing it over different territories at different time periods just to make sure the output was was still logical at all those different times. And as I was doing it for Leroy McGurk's territory, it just dawned on me two things. A, Aside from the Mid-South years from 1979 forward, it really doesn't get talked about as much as Florida, Crockett, and the, the other bigger promotions. But also, there are times when this territory's roster is stacked with wrestlers that everybody knows, from Watson Hodge um, in this almanac. It looks at Dusty Rhodes' big run in 1971. So one year, they might have all this talent that's recognizable to most territorial wrestling fans. But then a year later, when Watts leaves and goes to Georgia and Hodge also goes to Florida, now all of a sudden the territories in the hands of a youngster named Ken Mantell, Armand Hussein, Danny Miller, Chief Thundercloud and Chief Whitecloud, Steve Lawler and Jim White. There are these amazing ups and downs in the territory. So it's fascinating to look at over a much longer period of time because, as I said, there are times when it's stacked with talent and there are times when it isn't. So it's really fascinating to see how the, the ebb and flow. And I think all territories have that. We all think of like Florida and Crockett as always being top tier. When you look at it, there are times when the, the talent level isn't what it is a couple of years later. And the same can be said for places like East Texas or Amarillo. Uh, even, you know, most most of the more regional territories outside of the Northeast and outside of the AWA all have these ebbs and flows. Well, you can't have a boom if you don't have not as maybe not a bust, but you know, you need, there, dips, a, you need yeah. dips to have highs. Yeah. There's also a line of thought that, that that's a part of, you know, just like it's a part of the economy that you have to have a recession in, in some ways. 
Uh, there's a lot of people that think you don't necessarily need to kill the territory, but you do need to cool it off to heat it back up again. And that's a lot of people, uh, one of the criticisms of 1984, 1985 Mid-South is, um, you know, they – when they went from Dundee, I, I think Eddie Gilbert was in between Dundee and Slater, or am I mistaken? I believe so. And may, yeah. Yeah, and, and so you go, yeah. so you go from Dundee, he's got the Memphis style, and of course I, the territory was super hot with, with Dundee as Booker, but who do they replace him with? Uh, pretty much the, the, you know, the spider, the two Spider-Man meme. They replace it with Eddie Gilbert, who was brought up in, in Memphis and, and wants to do something similar. And so there's there's a lot of, you know, people that think that you should, you know, after a, a boom period, you need to have a booker with a completely different MO, a different method, different way, different line of thinking. And if that cools it off, that's fine. You can always bring it back up. But but you can't keep doing the same thing over and over again. And it seems like in a lot of territories – the the cyclical nature is almost built in a lot of times due to the time of the year and or the weather, you know, where the AWA always ran, you know, peaked in the winter when everybody's stuck inside. And, you know, they run very little in the summer when everybody's finally able to go outside and do other stuff. And, you know, St. Louis is kind of, was kind of built uh, around the baseball season in St. Louis and, you know, Florida, you would assume, you know, the same with the weather and in other places. So I don't know if that, that kind of thing holds true for sort of the, you know, this region of the country or not. Um, I'm, I don't think there's any seasonality ebbs and flows to this territory, but you mentioned St. Louis, uh, not only St. Louis, but the heart of America, central States territory, they were in a reduced schedule during the summer, and I think that you mentioned St. Louis was due to baseball, but I think part of the reason is due to, uh, in the early 70s, up, up until the late 70s, the cost of air conditioning in a small to medium-sized indoor venue didn't make any sense given how long the summer was in that region, because uh, the same, I, I said it's uh, Heart of America, but also some of the towns that were McGurk towns in southern Missouri also took off for the summer, Joplin in particular. So I have a feeling that has to do with the climate where it didn't make sense for them to put in air conditioning in these buildings for two or three months worth of use. Um, Florida at one point actually shut down for the summers. I think this is even before uh, Cowboy Latrell took over, but I think in the early 60s, whatever was, was running in Florida, they shut down for the summer. And again, that's because the weather is nice, people are outside, but also because I think these indoor venues, uh, it didn't make economical sense for them to have air conditioning at that point in time. Well, I know it's funny when you talk about Florida in a sort of later period that when you see ads in the 70s, you know, they seem to almost sell air-conditioned buildings as a reason to come to the matches, kind of the way people used to go to the movies in the summer, you know, when not everybody had air conditioning. Yeah, it's definitely an advertising point. Uh, and I see that in a lot of ads in a lot of territories uh, in, in the South. And, yeah, that's probably something they would want their fans to know is you're not going to, you know, sweat to death. Unlike unlike when I worked in uh, Cornelia, Georgia, for Wild Side and Anarchy in the summer, where uh, two well-placed box fans was about all the ventilation that building had. 
the worst show I can remember being at was when I briefly worked for uh, Maryland Championship Wrestling. We did an outdoor show at like a bar restaurant that was um, like along the Potomac. And it was, and the ring was set up outside, like on the beach area. So not only was the, not only were guys not really bumping because of how hot the canvas was, but they weren't really taking many bumps outside the ring because you do not really want to get covered in sand if you were a wrestler. But it was so hot that day, I was, I believe I was doing the timekeeping. And it was so hot that I went through, you know, three or four bottles of water and, like, never had to get rid of them because I sweated them all out. (laughs) But, yeah, I mean, you know, it's like, you know, July, August, you know, along the Potomac is, you know, not a pleasant place to be. Yeah, outdoor shows are are not high on my list. Obviously, once you get into the fall – uh, and, you know, if they're held uh, in the early evening, you know, once it gets dark, it's a different it's a different story. But, yeah, sand, uh, especially if you're wearing, you know, if you're a wrestler wearing tights, uh, the sand is going to end up in places you don't want sand in. Um, we refer to this as McGurk territory because he was the majority owner. But one of the interesting things I learned from the book was just who the other owners were. At this time in the early 70s, guys who had pieces in the territory, and I think Watts and Hodge having pieces, you would understand, but some of the other names, I think, may surprise people. Yeah, so Watts and Hodge uh, both had pieces of the territory, and this came from uh, both Bill Watts's book and Danny Hodge's book, but Leroy owned one-third of the company in the early 70s, and Watts owned one sixth. So between the two of them, that's 50% right there. As far as the other 50%, Danny Hodge had 10%, and Vern Gagne and Fritz von Erich each owned 20%. And this is the kind of thing that makes me wonder if this was commonplace. Uh, I used to, for a while, I used to play a lot of poker. When poker got really big on TV, I used to travel around and play in the tournaments. And there were a lot of guys who all of them would own, they would work together. They wouldn't, they wouldn't collude in, tur- you know, in tournaments, but, um, when they were all signed up for a tournament, they all owned little pieces of one another. And it's a way of sort of smoothing out the variance. Um, because when you're p- playing tournament poker, you can go months without winning and just losing your, your entry fee. And then you have that one big score. So this way, if a whole bunch of people are, are sharing in each other's, um, results, that sort of smooths the revenue curve. And I, so I wonder if this is a thing where a lot of promoters all own little pieces of, of each other's territories so that when one territory was having a downtime, they were at least getting something from the territory that was doing well. It seemed like the, the Welchers did that too, where they would have pieces of different Tory, different territories. And then we know at one point, Buddy, and Lester basically traded territories. You know, one went from Georgia and the other went to Florida. So again, you know, that's not only having pieces in different territories, but then you also have the family relationship at work. Right. 
And and we know Watts uh, when he went to Georgia to to book there at seventy three. I think he ends up with a small piece of that territory, um, which he held. Uh, I think long after he went back to McGurk. So uh, the, yeah, there's just I think a lot of these wrestlers realize that's where, if not you know where the real money is, or at least a more steady income is when you own pieces of all these territories, you're you're always getting something. And if your territory is down, someone else's territory might be up and your little percentage of that is is enough to uh get you by. Now did Vern and or Fritz ever come in and work? Like even for like, yeah, you know, maybe like a week or two at a time just to come down to see how things are going? Or was I it have- always just from the distance? I have n- I have not seen their name pop up in any results, and I've I've I have results from from 1959 through 1986. Um, no Vern, no Fritz. Uh, Waldo came in, but of course that doesn't mean anything. Um, no, they just uh, you know, like I said, I think this was just a way of uh, of offsetting. And there's also I know uh, Watts and Fritz had a deal with Mid-South, where Fritz actually owned a small percentage of of Oklahoma City and Tulsa, which is why, as you get into the 80s, you always see the Von Erichs, and then you see even Jim Garvin and Chris Adams working in Tulsa and Oklahoma City. Uh, they had a deal. Uh, it, basically, Fritz uh, gave Watts some money, and in exchange for that, he got pieces of those two towns. Uh, to the surprise of nobody, uh, it did not end well. Uh, Fritz ended up suing Watts because Watts stopped paying him. No, it certainly seems like a lot of the Texas promoters would fall in and fall out with each other. You know, Fritz and Fritz and Blanchard, you know, Paul Bosch. It seemed like, you know, one of them always seemed to be sort of working with one of the other ones after having just broken off a relationship with the other it seems like a very fluid kind of thing over the years and and you get the same thing in this territory as you get into the late 70s uh george culkin the mississippi promoter has a falling out with leroy uh starts his own territory but for the first couple of weeks before he had his own crew first actually sent him tv to air in mississippi and then a couple and so a couple years later when the culkins make up with McGurk slash Watts a month before Watts and McGurk split. Then when McGurk now is on his own and informs and starts the tri-state territory in Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Missouri, he gets most of his talent uh, initially from Fritz. So it's, it's just interesting to see all these, uh, you know, it, it, it's like a soap opera or, you know, a TV show where they have all these allegiances that are ever changing and shifting and people that one week were enemies are now find themselves needing to work together. True. Um, we've talked about Watts and Hodge, who were there, I think, the majority of the time covered in this book. But who were some of the other people in the territory at this time that everybody would know? Uh, the big names are Dusty Rhodes, of course, and the Spoiler. Spoiler had a big run here starting in 1970. Also, the Hollywood Blondes of Buddy Roberts and Jerry Brown have some runs here. One of the big heels is a name some people might not be familiar with, and that's the mass Dr. X, who is not Dick Meyer, but is Jim Osborne. And Osborne had actually came here 
from the AWA where he was teaming with Buyer as Double X. And uh, he took the mask and brought it down here. Uh, Roger Kirby, Sputnik Monroe, Ivan Putsky, uh, of course, uh, the infamous Grizzly Smith, Bob Sweetan, and Terry Garvin are here. The less we talk about them, the better. Boris Malenko came in briefly. Dale Lewis came in briefly. Of course, Dale was former teammate and roommate of Bill Watts uh, and was brought in first as a babyface, but eventually turned on Watts and they had a little feud. Frankie Kane was here as the great Mephisto. Uh, Dennis Stamp was booked. Um, Tarzan Tyler came in. Uh, the Mongols, who were Nikolai Volkov and Newton Tatry. Uh, I mentioned earlier a young Ken Mantell. Uh, and also Skandor Akbar had a long run here. And what a lot of people may not know is up until late 73, Akbar was a babyface in this territory. Yeah, that always struck me as odd. I remember the the first time you talked about it on the podcast that, you know, that it's just someone that you always just associate with being a heel. Then, you know, but it's, you know, there it's very rare for someone to go their entire career only being one or the other, even if you have a gimmick where you're, you know, a foreign menace manager later in your career. Right, and I I think in this case the reason why was because Akbar was well enough known in Wichita Falls, which was one of the weekly towns in this territory, because um, he grew up not far from there. And I think before he got into wrestling, he sort of had a reputation as a local strong man who would do feats of strength. So I think it's one of those, they introduce him as Skander Akbar, but everyone goes, oh, that's Jim Weba. Oh, that's that's old Jim. Uh, he first, when he first came into the territory in, I think, 67, he was a heel aligned with the Assassins. But in, after less than six months, he was turned babyface where Hodge, uh, convinced him that the assassins were taking advantage of him. And from, from that point, the summer of 67, all the way through late 73, Akbar, of course, isn't here that whole time. He's working other territories, but for a total, he's in here in aggregate about half that time and he's a babyface and he has a big run as a teammate of Hodge, Hodge and Akbar as a team in 69 and early 70. Which, one of the things I always wondered about when I started watching wrestling in the mid-80s was why the guy who's supposed to be, you know, a Middle Eastern heel with all this oil money, not only does not have a stereotypical accent, but sounds like he's from Texas. (laughs) Yeah, there's a reason. That he never, you know, affected an accent, I guess. I always sort of... But again, you know, had I grown up in the territory, it just would have made sense. But when you, you know, all of a sudden start watching world class out of the blue, you're like, what's this? This goes against my my expectations of the wrestling tropes. Yeah, it, it definitely does. And I guess, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if he had at one time tried to have a foreign accent and couldn't do it. So they just, you know, instead of instead of doing something that obviously sounds fake, just, you know, for the same reason, you hardly ever see Ric Flair throw a dropkick because he knew he couldn't do it well. So he never did it. Now, is the Dr. X here, is he the one that sold the the masks in the magazines or was that buyer? Uh, I I think he sold masks in this territory. I know they definitely, when he turned babyface uh, in 74 or late 70. 
three, uh, they were doing T-shirts in the programs. I have there's definitely ads for Dr. X T-shirts. It wouldn't surprise me if they were doing masks as well. Obviously, merchandising isn't isn't what it you know became in the 80s, and and you don't have uh, the high spots guy driving driving down to you know buy hundreds and hundreds of uh, Dr. X masks to resell uh, like like he was doing with uh, with Lucha Libre. Because I noticed that when you watch Mid-South TV from the Irish Manito Boys Club, there seems to always be someone in the crowd wearing a Dr. X mask. So, I mean, I would assume that, you know, that's, you know, years after his peak being in the territory, and yet, you know, you still have people wearing his mask in the crowd, which I always, you know, which I always found fun. Yeah, and he was definitely a big deal. He had a huge run as a heel. He was unmasked in most of the towns by Danny Hodge, disappeared for a couple of months, came back, uh, and then was turned babyface, had a big feud with uh, Sweet Tan, a big feud with Tank Morgan, uh, and he was here for the next few years. Then he came back in uh, 77. He uh, teamed up with Porkchop Cash. They won the tag team titles, and two weeks later, he turned heel on Porkchop. Uh, and aligned himself with, with Skander Akbar. So it all comes full circle. Right. One of the things, uh, as I'm going through this and looking at the stats and everything, is there's a, the, the biggest feud in 1970, or the, one of the biggest feuds in 1971 is Dusty Rhodes versus the Spoiler. Now, is that a heel versus heel feud? To the best of my knowledge, it's heel versus heel. If anything, spoiler, if, if the fans were cheering anybody, it was probably the spoiler. Uh, I believe the, the feud was set up by Battle Royals. Um, I don't necessarily know that there was an angle on TV. It, at this time, a lot of the feuds are started by angles at, at house shows. Or at the very least, there's a very basic angle done on TV and then in each town, based on how the feud draws the first time they book it, they will run an angle to build to a rematch with certain steps. And it's not like it's not how we picture wrestling. Not, it's not how we see wrestling in the 80s, where if Lawler's fighting Dundee in a cage match in Memphis the following week, it's going to be the cage match in Louisville, Evansville, Nashville and Tupelo. Uh, it's not like the WWF where Hogan and Boss Man face off in a handcuff match, you know, every night for two months straight. Here, each town sort of has its own narrative because of the local promos on TV. They, you know, they can they can tell their own stories. If the feud draws really well in one town, they'll keep running angles to build to rematches with with certain stipulations that may not happen in other towns in the territory. But yeah, that's a very rare heel versus heel feud for this territory. And I think it's just, it's just, you know, they did, this territory was so focused on the junior heavyweights for so many years that even with Watts there, they only had so many heavyweights to work. And I think in this case, the reason Rhodes was feuding with spoiler was because they did an injury angle with Watts where Rhodes injured Watts. So he needed someone for Dusty to work while he's, while he's selling that injury before he comes back and is able to vanquish Dirty Dusty. Yeah, because when I saw that, I was like, you know, on the surface, you just go, oh, Dusty Rhodes versus the spoiler. That makes sense. And then you're like, but wait, Dusty's not a baby face yet. Yeah. And I'm like, the spoiler's not a baby face, is he? And then I had to look to make sure, like, to look it up to see that they both were actually heels. And I was like, I wonder how that worked. 
but you they, know. well, uh, Crockett used to do the Battle of the Bullies all the time. Uh, a lot of territories did that. In fact, if you look at rosters for a territory, and this is one of the things I've, I've you know done over the last couple of years, most of the time there's an imbalance. There are more top level heels than baby faces. And I think a lot of that is for psychology. If you have Watts and Hodge trying to fend off four different guys who are all coming after them, it, you know, builds up the, you know, them up as the underdog and gets fans to root for them and rally behind them because they're overcoming the odds. But be, and meanwhile, in the, uh, on the lower levels in the prelims, you often have more baby faces. So this way, you know, you end up, you still have the same number of babies and heels on the roster as a whole. It's just the heel side is more top heavy and the baby face side has more preliminary wrestlers. And that's where you get those scientific opening matches between two baby faces that goes to a time limit draw. And so because of that, to balance it out, you sometimes have to do a heel versus heel. I was going to say, I think it's, you know, you can do two faces underneath just having a straight match because they're baby faces and they have no problem wrestling against each other. But, you know, to do two heels, you probably do need to have it higher up the card where there's something at stake, whether it's a title shot or money or, or even just, you know, even just the idea of two, of two top guys beating the crap out of one another. You know, that again, you know, yes, fans in that era want their heroes to win, to have their hand raised, but realistically, they're just looking for fights. Uh, they want their, they want their hero to beat the, you know, to beat the snot out of the bad guy. And every now and then, if two bad guys beat the snot out of one another, well, then it makes it easier for Watts when he comes back next week because, uh, both of them are, you know, worse for wear. Especially when we're still in the era of the winner's purse and the pay window and things like that, that, you know, you certainly wouldn't put it past the heel to turn on another heel just for money or a bounty or winning a battle royal or something like that. And sometimes that's all it takes. Yeah, you know, we think about stipulation matches and titles, and, and one stipulation that, that unfortunately has been lost is the idea of money. And a lot of times what they would do with these battle royals, you know, there's be, there'd be a, a significant purse for the winner. And let's say there's a controversial ending to the battle royal. They'll hold up the purse pending a singles match between, the, between those, two, those last two guys the following week. And if it draws well again, they might do a double countout and the following week, say, for the Battle Royal purse plus last week's purse plus this week's purse. And, yeah, you know, money money will cause uh, bad and, – and the bad guys were – unless they're in a regular tag team, the bad guys were never really – positioned as being in cahoots with one another unless they're you know unless they're all managed by the same guy like albano's guys or blast's guys or what have you but whereas watts and hodge have have a relationship and, and will often team up a lot of times the heels are only out for themselves which again was is just part of the morality play so uh, you know it, it's uh it's perfectly reasonable for dusty to want to go after spoiler because he's got no he's got no feelings for him and Looking at the roster, there's a, a bunch of names that people were recognized. This is the uh, thing that I learned, to, to borrow a phrase from your podcast, things I learned from your book, is I would, did not expect to see a very young Pez Watley in this territory. 
especially given this seems to be a couple years before his his acknowledged debut, from what I understand. Uh, well, that's sort of the tricky thing, and this was something uh, we've talked about on my Charting the Territories podcast. His debut, a lot of times, is credited to a magazine article that came out a couple years later. And one of the things with the magazines, they often used older photos, and on top of that, they always uh, pre, you know, predated the issue. So if the if the magazine is is dated April 1975, it might have been published in November or December of 1974, and it may contain pictures uh, that happened a year earlier. Uh, there they 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 make a point of not mentioning specific dates and times and places, so that these articles are are in a way evergreen. So that's probably the reason why. But yeah, we list the whole roster for the territory. Basically, anyone who worked more than once a week for at least five weeks um, during the period of 1971 to 1973. I think overall there's between 140 and 150 wrestlers that were considered regulars. At any given time, there's usually between 25 and 30 wrestlers um, being booked out of McGurk's uh, territory. Yeah, just uh, flipping through, like you said, everybody's got a bio and it has their their stats. I was trying to think... Um, like how to describe since this is more a reference book than anything it's, else. Yeah. That uh, well, what I was going to do, I was going to compare it to since you know we are of a similar age, you know, to buying the Who's Who in baseball every year when it came out, or you know the American League. Let's see, do I have this right? American League Red Book, National League Green Book. I think I think those are the right colors. You know that every year, you know, you would go to the newsstand and buy your big book of stats because, you know, they weren't that common, you know, like when I was growing up in the, the late seventies or eighties, you know, a lot of it became, you know, came later, but you still, you did always have that little who's who in baseball book every year. Right. And one of the uh, original ideas behind charting the territories was to create what I call back of the baseball card stats for wrestlers. Um, we know all about Bruno Sammartino. We know all about Ric Flair. We know all about Lou Thez. We don't know a whole lot about Jim Ledford or even, even, you know, a guy like Tarzan Baxter, who was a, a main eventer in this territory and then Gulf Coast and had runs in Florida and several other places as well. Um, whatever stat, we should be able to have stats that can be applied to all wrestlers. Cause if we want to compare it to baseball, uh, of course we know how many home runs, uh, Reggie Jackson hit or Babe Ruth or bonds or what Jeter's batting average was, but those stats, we also know those stats for the non hall of famers and the non all-stars and the non champions. And so the, the idea here, the idea behind what I call the spot rating, which measures a wrestler's average position on the cards, if they were in main events or in the mid cards or in prelims, was to have a stat that can be applied to all wrestlers. And so in this in this book, we not only list the roster, but as you said, we have sort of a, a little stat guide where it shows you how many weeks they were in the territory. There's a small little uh, timeline that actually shows you exactly which months they were in the territory, how frequently they were in the book, how frequently they were booked, what their average spot rating was, and what their biggest feuds were. And in the case of some wrestlers, also has uh, some aliases or other names they might be better known as. I did not include real names 
and dates of birth for every wrestler. I would have loved to, but when I compiled that list and I consulted with a couple of experts, there were quite a few that we couldn't come up with a census agreement on. Um, and I, you know, I, I just, they're just enough where we're not really sure what their date of birth was or what their legal, you know, real name was that I didn't include it. I also didn't want to include dates of death because once the first wrestler passes away who was alive when I published the book, but then, you know, passes away afterwards, now the book is outdated. And we actually had that last week when uh, Jose Rivera passed away. Yeah, I, it's one of the things that, uh, people who listen to your podcast will know is just how many things that we've sort of taken for conventional wisdom for years and years and years, you know, has been turned out that, you know, a guy's real name, which we thought was X for years, turns out it was actually Y, you know, maybe slightly spelled differently, you know, maybe like, Smith with an I and it's really Smith with a Y or something like that. And, you know, there's just so much stuff that, again, I always say, you know, it's a business built on a lie. So there's so much disinformation at every step. You got to take everything with a grain of salt. And that includes what we know are people's names or their birthday. You know, like unless you see like real official government documentation, take everything with a grain of salt. Right. So I, I, I made a point of, of deciding not to include that info because if I have one thing wrong, I'm the type of person I, I, I can't, you know, I, I can't do that. So, uh, I chose not to list dates of birth. And, you know, for example, Chris Markoff, uh, can anyone confirm and prove to me whether he is alive or not? I don't think anyone really knows this. I have, and I don't know if he is or not. I'm saying that that anyone who claims to know one way or the other, I, I disagree because he he sort of fell off the face of the earth. A lot of these guys have, particularly a lot of the preliminary wrestlers. This was something they tried out for a couple of years, didn't have the knack for it, and they moved on. So we have no way of knowing, you know, what happened to them unless they unless they did something else of note, and that's uh, Leo Seitz and Siegfried Stanka. Interestingly enough, both had uh, mildly, you know, moderate wrestling careers, nothing spectacular, but both of them uh, went on to careers in coaching football and coaching strength training and actually are uh, have a connection through the 1990 Heisman Trophy winner, Ty Detmer. Um, I think Seitz was his strength coach and Stanka, real name William Lehman, was an assistant coach uh, where Ty, his brother Coy, and that father was the head coach. And we talked about the connection with Virginia on a piece of territory. It's interesting to see uh, among the list of prelim wrestlers were two very famous people trained by Virginia in one of his camps, and that's uh, the future Iron Sheik and Bob Backlund both briefly wrestled in the territory in 1973. Yeah, they were there uh, later in 73. Sadly, they never wrestled against one another while they were here, because how cool would that have been? But yeah, uh, you know, Ghana's rookies, we, we, you know, we think of them, they probably worked for the AWA briefly. We, we you know, we know Flair 
you know, started in prelims there. So I think a lot of people have this vision in their head that they worked prelims for the end for the AWA and then went somewhere and got pushes like Backlund and Amarillo. Well, Backlund was here with not much of a push, although I will say he was protected. He very rarely lost. And a lot of times they did open, they advertised quote unquote open workouts with Backlund. So he was protected, but he was never given much of a push when he went to Amarillo in early 74. Of course, he did get his first push. I think within his first or second week there, he wins the uh, Western States heavyweight title from Terry Funk, which uh, that's a, that's a sign that they like you when they, uh, when they put you over Funk, you know, a week or so into your run. But you can definitely see Backlund being the kind of guy who would, be successful or protected here, given their sort of history of, you know, amateur wrestler, you know, you know Hodge, Dale Lewis, guys like that. So, you you know, Backlund would just be like the latest version of that, uh, that style in the territory. Right. And if you read his book, I believe he was not a fan of the pay he received while here. And so that's why he perhaps didn't stick around long enough to, well, although, you know, once someone's established as a preliminary wrestler, it's hard for them to get moved up the cards without leaving and coming back or in very rare cases by turning. So I don't, you know, I don't think had he stayed, he would have gotten pushed, but I think had he left on good terms and decided to come back a year or so later, he would have found himself higher up on the cards, but he ended up doing, I think that kid ended up doing pretty well for himself. So, you know, who are we to speculate? Do we know, uh, did this, uh, what kind of reputation this territory had as far as payouts go, you know, with, you know, Tennessee being near the bottom, and, you know, Florida and St. Louis probably being near the top, where this would rank on that scale? All we have is anecdotal evidence. And, of course, the ones who were not happy with their pay will tell you the pay was horrible. The ones who were happy with their pay will tell you the pay was fine. Uh, I think as much as we understand the bottom of Tennessee is bad, you know, as uh, my friend Bo James has always said, you know, if you last six, you know, if you last six months, you get a little pay bump. And if you last two years, you get a big pay bump. I think it's the same here. The guys in the bottom did did not make a whole lot. But the guys on top probably did make a lot. I, I think uh, in the case of Hodge, he probably could have gone anywhere and done well for himself. Uh, you know, maybe there aren't as many territories for a a junior heavyweight, a light heavyweight, as there are for the heavyweights, but he certainly could have worked full-time for Vern and done very well for himself. Um, I did mention earlier he went to Florida for a while in 74 and 75. He did not really break through to the upper levels of the cards there, so it, it's possible he was happier being a big fish in a small pond. He lived nearby. This was his literally, you know, he lived in I, I don't, you know, he lived in the same town. I think he was raised in. So if he isn't making as much as he could have if he went somewhere else, he's making enough that he can, you know, stay in the town he grew up in and make a living. Cool. Um, yeah, I, I, I understand people want things like attendance figures and payoffs. A, I, you know, first off, we don't have it. 
Uh, you know, we, we just don't have much of that info for much of the territories. And for me, especially being someone who was in the business, I, I, you know, I have a different view on pay. I, I don't necessarily think it's, should be, you know, as publicly shared because I, I don't think people can know what to do with it. Like, like I said, they'll focus on, on the really bad. They'll say, oh, the prelim guys only made X. Well, that's horrible. Yeah, but the, you know, the guys that sucked through it and made it, you know, became superstars made a lot. And it's probably the same thing as with the pay in MMA right now. I do think the bottom guys in MMA should get paid more, but I do think that a Conor McGregor or a Nate Diaz brings a whole lot more to the table and thus should, you know, make multiples of what, you know, the, the fighters in the earlier bouts make. Yeah, I don't necessarily, you know, need to know dollars. It's more like, was this a good paying territory in general? You know, I mean, like, I don't necessarily, you know, I don't need to see the thing where, you know, we're now, you know, like when the Bosch estate came out and we got to see all of these, like, actual pay records. It's like, yes, that's interesting, but more from a general sense than needing necessarily no dollars and cents. Or, or it's more interesting just to know, you know, how accurate slash honest the promoters were with the talent when, you know, did they pay on the percentage or did they say they paid on the percentage but really didn't? You know, I'm more interested in sort of the, like, not necessarily the nitty-gritty details, but sort of more the overarching facts, I guess. Right. Yeah, and that's, I, you know, that's something I think everyone's curious about. And, you know, we see something like St. Louis. Also realize St. Louis just ran once every three weeks on average. So that's not indicative of what wrestlers were earning. And the same thing goes with for for Houston. That is – for up and up until the late seventies, Bosch is very closely aligned with with Fritz's booking office. Uh, he's mo- he's booking most of his crew from there. So it's not just what those wrestlers made in Houston every week. It's what they made in Dallas and Fort Worth and Austin and Corpus Christi and San Antonio and in the spot towns. It, it's you know you really need all of that information in aggregate to know how much money a wrestler was making annually. Uh, and, you know, if it was worth it. One thing I was wondering, this is only for two years. This is only for 71 to 73. But on the whole, for the territory's history, um, how it, is this a good period? We know we were talking about the cyclical nature. Is this era that we're talking about, is this one of their high points or just maybe like an average? For the- it's it's believed to be a high point, and and again, um, I list attendance figures in the book when I have them, and it's literally a handful of of cards. But I believe that Watts coming in full time, which he did in late in uh, 1970, uh, and bringing in the spoiler to feud with, sparked some some new life into the territory, particularly since the heavyweights had never really been a focus. They always had their heavyweights. They had a big run in 66 with the Assassins and the Kentuckians, but still it wasn't, you know, based around a heavyweight babyface. And so I think Watts really picked things up. He also, um, you know, through his connections was the one who was able to bring in guys like the Spoiler and Dusty. He, he, he knew who he could have good feuds with and he picked his uh, opponents pretty well. So, I believe this is an up period, and I believe that when Watts leaves in early 73, 
coupled with Hodge leaving at the end of 73, it leads to a down period, which will pick back up in mid-75 when Watts comes back and a little bit later Hodge comes back. Now, this is a silly question, but given that Watts owned a piece of the territory and Hodge is, you know, the legendary local hero, did they always stay as baby faces in this territory or did they ever switch back and forth? They were both always baby faces in the territory. Uh, Hodge in particular, it would never have worked. He's a hometown boy. He's literally a legend. You know, he's on the cover of Sports Illustrated and he grew up in this tiny little town of Perry, Oklahoma. It would not have worked. Um, they probably could have with Watts, but I, I highly doubt Watts would have wanted to turn himself heel in, in, in the territory that he had a piece of. I, I think that's something we see with a lot of bookers is you know, they have earned, they, they earned the right to be booker by being a proven draw. Uh, and being proven, you know, having proven abilities in the ring. So I think for Watts, it, it just it didn't make sense for him to turn heel. He also he didn't work a full time schedule as far as working six or seven nights a week on the house shows like the rest of the crew. He sort of picked his spots, and he would work in uh, mostly in the larger cities like Tulsa, Little Rock, Jackson, Mississippi, and Oklahoma City. Uh, so I think he was just happy, you know, being, being the big baby face hero a few nights a week and then the rest of the time handling the booking. No, it makes sense, but you know, especially, you know, I don't think Vern probably ever turned heel there, you know, so where you have the owner star, you know, I guess maybe Lawler is just the exception and he wasn't always the owner. Plus, you know, Lawler is such a unique individual that if you don't have his personality and his charisma, especially as a heel, maybe it wouldn't necessarily work every place for you to turn the the local hero. Yeah, I, I think it, it'd be very difficult if you owned the territory, even if no one knew about it. It's just one of those things. What if somebody found out it would be it would be really, really bad for business. Uh, what's interesting is in East Texas, you talked about how Fritz and Blanchard and Paul all had their, uh, you know, periods of, of love and hate in a way that territory is almost like three territories in one in the early seventies, because Fritz is sometimes running his own storylines in Dallas and Fort Worth. Blanchard is running his own in San Antonio and Austin and Bosch has his own thing going in Houston. And one thing I notice is Joe Blanchard uh, will be a heel in Dallas and Fort Worth in the early seventies, feuding with Fritz or some of the other baby faces. And, is a babyface or isn't wrestling at all in his towns and is positioned as the promoter or, you know, retired legend. So I, I think there's something to a, a guy not wanting to be heel in the, in the towns he promotes just in case somebody found out. No, that no, now that we're talking about that, I'm thinking like the number of times that, that Ron Fuller has talked on his pod about, you know, dealing with, station managers and business owners and things like that. And just how much easier it is if he's a baby face, a baby face than as a heel. And if you're a heel, do you have to get an intermediary to do your business because you can't break kayfabe and things like that? So, yeah, I guess logically. And then even when Lawler would go back and forth, you still technically have Jerry Jarrett as the actual right. sort of, businessman behind everything that you don't have to worry about. I, guess I was just thinking, you know, 
maybe it's because I know how good a heel Watts can be, or <coughs> how certainly Watts can come off as a heel if you're not uh, philosophically aligned with him. I guess to to be polite. But yeah, that just that I was looking at like sort of all the people in the book and how many you know, how many turns you had and it doesn't seem like there's really that many. I guess maybe it's also, you know, back in the time where you do a few heel turns that count more than sort of the more frequent ones that we sort of have in the modern era. Yeah, I think turns aside from Goulas and Gulf Coast uh, and later Southeastern, I think they're the ones that that had the very frequent turns. Most other territories, Florida, Florida did too, to some extent at sometimes, but most of the other territories, there were a couple a year. And, you know, in theory, it's probably because they had more impact when they didn't do them all the time. Um, but yeah, in this case, I think I mentioned Dr. X was one who turned, Dale Lewis turned, there are maybe a couple others, uh, Beppo Mongol, who is Nikolai Volkov, uh, when his partner literally left him high and dry, uh, they turned him babyface and then, uh, finished him up a couple of weeks later. Um, yeah, there's just really not that many over, over a three year period, there's maybe, you know, four or five turns uh done in the territory. Now, a lot of times guys will leave and you know, the guys were here as a baby face, they'll leave and they'll come back a year or two later and now they're a heel and they'll they'll come up with some sort of reason. Uh they just, you know, uh they re, you know they had so much fun wrestling out of the territory. Now they hate they have to come back to stupid Oklahoma. Or there might be a wrestler there that wasn't there when they left that they had a beef with in another territory, so they'll create that sort of storyline. There are that, that seems to be the way that most wrestlers were switched up in their roles is to send them away and then bring them back uh, and come up with a story to explain their change in attitude. When they go away and learn a new hold, as yes. as the as the saying goes, yeah, or Disco Inferno trying to trying to learn his new leg hold. You, did, you ever, did you watch WCW in the Disco Inferno era? Yes. All right. So he kept doing this thing where he kept teasing. He would have this new leg hold, and then he debuted, and he didn't know how to put it on, and so he ended up getting rolled up. So then the following week, he has the guy vulnerable. He goes to his corner. He pulls out a sheet of paper, and he has a little diagram of how to apply the leg hold. But, of course, while he's reading it, they, they get him from behind and pin him. It's genius. I, <laughs> I understand people are, are not fans of the Disco Inferno nowadays, but, man, I, I thought he was hilarious, and I thought I, I loved it. Did you work with him on the indies before he went to WCW? Uh, no, I didn't start in the indies. Uh, until right around the time he was with WCW. As a matter of fact, the fall brawl, I think it's 95 from Asheville, North Carolina. They held a live, um, whatever the Sunday night show was on TBS. They did that live from the arena before the pay-per-view. Disco had already been there and they'd already taped matches that hadn't aired yet. And this ended up being the first match of his that aired on TV. But as he's coming out, you'll, the, the, um, camera pans to an idiot in the crowd saying disco fever for about two seconds. And that idiot is me. <laughs> so I was, I had just barely gotten in the business, but we had, uh, we had, I think front row or second row tickets to fall brawl. It was the one where they had two rings 
And every match on the pay-per-view, except for the main event, was in the ring farthest away from us, except for um, Arn and Flair, Arn and Flair's deal. So that was right in front of us. We also had a uh, Hogan is a bum banner that that uh, got taken away from us. Fun times. <laughs> of course. Um, the other thing, besides all your various wrestling trips that you make to do research on, um, probably in conjunction with your wrestling research, I would imagine, uh, you had a very interesting summer where you went on quite the odyssey this year. Yeah, and I guess we could tell uh, tell your listeners about that. So I've I had already been to all 30 Major League Baseball stadiums over the course of a several year period of time, and I decided early on this year that I was going to do all of them again this season. And so once the season started, uh, pretty much on a weekly basis, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't rent a, a Winnebago and drive all across the country doing it. Um, most of them were day trips. Uh, I love weekday day games. So I would literally fly into Boston, you know, on a Wednesday morning or a Thursday morning, go to the game, from the game, go back to the airport, catch a flight home and sleep in my bed. Uh, wasn't always feasible to do that. And certainly when I'm traveling to the West Coast, I sort of, you know, coupled a, a, a few games together as trips. But I ended up uh, over the course of the season, not only going to all 30 major league stadiums, but I also attended 10 minor league baseball games in various places as well. Include, where was the place that you saw a game this year in a state you had never been to before? I, I went to three games in three days in Montana. I flew into Bozeman and then drove to Billings, Missoula, and I believe Great Falls. Uh, they were all about two and a half hour drives from one another. I ended up basically doing a big circle uh, around part of the state. Uh, I got to tell you, driving through Montana, it, the, it's absolutely breathtaking. Uh, just beautiful uh, mountains, blue sky, just uh, uh, really different from the big cities that I've lived in for most of my life. Yeah, you did not. You did not manage to make it uh, anywhere near. You did not make it to the Ironbirds or the Blue Rocks, unfortunately. So we could. We did not have a chance to hook up and go to a game together. No, we did not. I'm. I'm already looking at doing doing something next year where I would base at, not try and hit every stadium, but go to uh, a major city with a major league team but then also spent a couple of days going around to minor league stadiums within a couple hour drive. So sort of fly into a hub and then, you know, do like a wheel and a spoke pattern and catch a couple of minor league games and a major league game, uh, perhaps doing it when the Braves are visiting various stadiums, trying to do trips like that. So I'm looking at doing something like that. I also love to do the all-star game. I also had somebody tell me um, there's uh, some level of, of, you know, semi-pro baseball in Alaska, and every year they have one game in the summer that starts at midnight um, at the time when, you know, it's it's daylight all night long. So it's a it's a game played in the sun, but it starts at midnight. Yeah, I think I've seen features on that before, like years ago where, you know, like a like that's the kind of thing you would see on like CBS Sunday morning. Right. Or, you know, that kind of feature. Is there minor league baseball in Hawaii now? I 
I mean, I'm, there, I'm sure there is some level of semi-pro baseball in Hawaii, but I would think, given the budgets that the minor league teams have, they just can't afford, um, you know, unless they have, and, and that Hawaii isn't big enough to have a whole league. Um, so I, I, I yeah, I, I don't think so, I'm, but I'm sure they have something at some very low level of, uh, you know, semi-pro. What was the best stadium that you went to this year that you had never been to before? Um, well, so the major league ones, I'd been to all of them before, even the newest one, which was in Arlington. I had been there last season. So uh, yeah, I, the only, you know, the only ones with the minor league stadiums, most of them weren't much to, to brag about. The one in Missoula is uh, positioned perfectly so that when you look at, when you're sitting in the stands and look out into the outfield, you have a wonderful view of the mountains. And the other uh, part of these trips always, it's not just going to the games. It's also the ballpark food, which you love to document. Yeah, I had this idea in my head that I was going to find the, the most ridiculous over-the-top, um, you know, Franken-food that they had at the various stadiums and try it. Um, as the season wore on, a lot of those a lot of those dishes were no longer being offered. Uh, Fedway was supposed to have some... Uh, Hot dog with Cheeto, with flaming hot Cheeto dust on it. They literally had taken it off the menu two days before I got there. Um, in Toronto, they had this, uh, variation on poutine where instead of french fries, it was like pickle straws, fried pickle straws with peanut butter instead of gravy. But by the time I got there, they had taken it off the menu probably because it didn't sell well because it sounds absolutely disgusting. However, one of the cool things I had was in Kansas City. It was, a uh, it was a, a barbecue sandwich with candied bacon and Reese's peanut butter cups on it. And it was delicious. That reminds me, is it, is it places where they sell hot dogs that have Fruit Loops on them? Is that something I'm... Uh, yes, I, I think that was Cleveland. And I did have that. Just, you know, I'm still, you know, you and I are of a, a same vintage, I think, that <laughs> even, even, you know... Something like being able to get sushi at a ballpark still seems very exotic to me. Right. That like any time you deviate from the norm. Although that said, of course, being in Maryland, I will always buy crab cakes when I go to when I go to an Orioles game. So you know, you, you sort of have to lean into your regional delicacies, I suppose. Yeah. So Cleveland, Ohio, it's called the Slider Dog. It's got bacon, pimento mac and cheese, and Fruit Loops. And a, and a bun that is in no way, shape, or form uh, able to handle all of that, and it just becomes a big old mess, and you pretty much have to use a fork and or a spoon to actually eat all the bacon and the Fruit Loops that fell off the hot dog. That's funny. I don't think it's funny. Even though it's now decades old, I don't think I've actually been to that stadium. I think the one time I went to a game in Cleveland, it was still Municipal Stadium when I went there. That's how long ago it was. Yeah, this was the second time I'd been to this stadium. Like I said, I'd been to all of them at least once before. And, of course, I'd been to a few of the now defunct stadiums like Shea Stadium, the uh, the old Yankee Stadium, Three Rivers Stadium in Pittsburgh, uh, Turner Field in Atlanta, a couple of others. But uh, as far as the new ones, so, of course, now every time they build a new stadium, I'm going to have to go there. Otherwise, you know, the streak will die. I think it's funny that, I think my list may now be 
that I've been to more defunct stadiums than current stadiums in certain cities. Like I think I've only been, I only went to Municipal Stadium. I haven't been to Jacobs Field or whatever it's called now. I think I've only been to Riverfront. Not is it still Great American? Great Ball? American. Okay. Yeah. That's you know, and, and again, I'm horrible at remembering what the corporate names are now. Well, it's also I, yeah. It's, I mean, I don't you know. It's hard to remember the corporate names because they, you know, they don't necessarily have an attachment to the city. Um, but yeah, that's what, that's one of the many ways baseball has changed over the years is the uh, naming of stadiums. The one that I miss, the one that I regret the most now is Petco and Jack Murphy because I used to always go to Comic Con every year and being a Padres fan. I always wanted to go see the Padres play while I was in San Diego for the week. And it didn't used to be a problem because Jack Murphy is 20, 20 minutes outside the city, maybe. I mean, I don't know how far it actually is logistic because we always took the trolley out. So they would be able to have homestands during Comic-Con. But now that Petco is right next to the convention center, they always schedule them to be away during Comic-Con. So unless you come, like, early in the week or stay after the con, you you can't do the double dip anymore. But, yeah, I always – but, I mean, for being kind of an old, not great stadium, I really liked going to Jack Murphy. I, I've never been to Jack Murphy, but I, I love Petco. It's one of my favorites. And this year when I went, the game I went to was on July 5th. The day, I flew in the day before and I got to see Cool in the Gang at that uh, little amphitheater that's right on the water. I'm trying to Google see if I can find the name of it right now, but it's the it's one of the cool looking venues I've ever seen. And watching Cool in the Gang in uh, the year 2022 playing there on uh, the Fourth of July was uh, pretty neat. That's America for you. Yep, Cool in the Gang and baseball and uh, apple pie. The uh, the last thing that we were going to talk about, and I don't know how we're not going to probably go in as in depth in this as we could be, but I think after we had set up this podcast between then and now, um, Dave Meltzer sent out the Hall of Fame ballots for this year, and you know we're not going to go through at all because one there's a ton of names and two like you said there hasn't really been time to do any research on it but i was wondering what you thought about some of the logistical changes that dave made to the ballot this year he's increased the number of votes and um in one of his philosophical shifts there's now a whole bunch of tag teams on here and I know you actually brought up an interesting question earlier on Twitter about that. Yeah, I understand why tag teams, you know, should be separate. And I'm not saying it shouldn't be done like that. But when he listed all these new teams, he said, you know, he basically said, and so you should only consider the teams for their runs together as a tag team. And one of the things that, that, I've learned through years and years of research is, you know, in the 60s and 70s, there's no such thing as a quote-unquote tag team division or a singles division. In fact, your run-of-the-mill house show in a weekly market 
usually has a tag team main event involving singles wrestlers, involving two babyface main eventers teaming up to take on two heel main eventers. And so if we're saying that a tag team should only be judged in their matches as a tag team, does that mean the same thing applies when we're evaluating a wrestler who's listed individually? For example, Junkyard Dog, are we now supposed to discount the times he's teaming with Murdoch and Robley and Olympia and Mike George, which is, you know, the bulk of his peak years. Other thing, when he's talking about Japan, well, most of the time they're in six mans. So even if you're looking at a tag team like uh, Kawada and, and Tao, well, most of the time they're in six mans. And, and, and if you're now saying that Kawada was in as when he's listed by himself, he hardly ever had singles matches. It's literally a few times a year that these guys have singles matches outside of the champion carnival. So it makes things very icky. And I think there's a way to do it where if a tag team deserves to be in the hall of fame, they should be in the hall of fame. But for example, I'll I'll take the Briscoes. How many years were Jack and Jerry Briscoe a quote unquote regular tag team? Not very many. There are lots of times where when they're in the the same territory and they're teaming up occasionally, but it's still positioned as as Jack is, you know, a single star and usually has the single title and Jerry is often positioned a little bit lower. And so I think now if you're talking about the years they worked as a tag team versus the years they worked regularly as a tag time, those are two very different things. And it also brings in my whole Freebirds issue, which is Michael Hayes should not be in the Hall of Fame. Terry Gordy should, and Buddy Roberts should, but I don't think Hayes gets in much in the same way that I think Eaton and Condry should be in, but I don't think necessarily Stan Lane has as strong a case. The one other person that you mentioned is Sergeant Slaughter, and that's someone that I think I voted for every year that I've had and, a ballot. And, and that, the reason you voted for him was because you included his run with Kernodal as a team, as well you should. I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm saying if a tag team can only be considered for their time as a tag team, then what are you supposed to do with individual wrestlers? And if the answer is, well, you do everything of their whole career, then you don't need to have tag teams as a separate thing. No, that's what I was going to say. If you say I'm only voting for slaughter, but not taking into account the Don Cronodal team, then I don't think I'd vote for him. But when you take his career as a whole, then I probably would. And when you take Eaton and Condry's career as a whole, their their years together as the Midnight Express are strong enough to to get them in, let alone, you know, Condry's run with Hickerson in a smaller territory is probably significant, you know, is significant as well. So I get why he's doing it, and I'm not saying he's wrong, and I, I sure as hell don't have a better solution, but it just it in his attempt to make things less less confusing, I think he made them more confusing inadvertently. Well, and then looking at you know some of the new teams on this list, he now has. And if Marty Jannetty gets in the damn Hall of Fame and Junkyard Dog isn't, I will I will burn San Jose to the ground. The because Jannetty and the, Michaels are on there. Right. The one that I saw that struck me as odd is putting Lawler and Dundee as a tag team on the ballot. When one other than you know 
when they were AWA tag team champions, you don't really think of them ever as a team. I mean, you think of them more as opponents. And it's like, again, Lawler's already in. Dundee was on the ballot. I think, I don't know if it was late. He, he's been on the ballot recently because I think I voted for him. But he's not on the ballot now, which means he didn't get enough votes to stay on the ballot. But, yeah, I don't think of them as, you know, I've always said I love Tully and Arn individually and as a team, but, you know, they were only a team for two years. Yeah. And, and it's and like, I, is that, you know, it's like, are they, are they Joe Charbonneau? You know? Yeah. And, and how often were Lawler and Dundee teaming? Like, like I said, a lot, you know, a lot of times on your run of the mill house shows, you have two baby faces teaming against two heels. So there are probably a lot of times where Lawler and Dundee are teaming on a house show, but they're not necessarily presented as a full time team for any extended period of time. No, it's, and again, Dusty Rhodes and Dick Murdoch are on here for being the Texas Outlaws. That I can almost see because they were a team for so long early in their careers. And then, you know, the occasional runs where they would come together for a while. And how, then long, Murdoch, how long were they a team for? That I don't know. I mean, I don't. <laughs> so you, well, cause you had just, you just, you just applied some measure to it. You said for a long time. How long, how long was it? Uh, it was at least a few years, but I don't think much more than a few years. No, well, yeah, that's, that's the thing I would. I so mean, if, if JYD's out because he only had a four year run on top, none of these, I mean, I think he has Adonis and Ventura on there. They're, May it may be four years if, uh, but I think less than that. I think somewhere between three and four is more likely. You know, it's just it's it it it, it opens up a can, it inadvertently opens up a can of worms if you really truly overanalyze things like I do and like probably a lot of Hall of Fame voters do. It 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 makes you then ask questions that you probably shouldn't be asking. Like with Slaughter, I understand I'm overthinking this. And, and again, no, when you're talking about Slaughter, you should include it with Kernodal and, and either he's in or he's not. But just the way he explained the new tag team situation, to me, it's like, well, this doesn't jive with everything we, you know, everything we've been doing up to this point in time. Another interesting one, as I'm just looking at this, um, most of these tag teams he splits out who he's talking about. With the Von Erics, it says Kevin and Carrie and David. But then you get down to the Lucha section, and it just says Los Vianos. Well, I assume that means three, four, and five, but it doesn't say that. I, but I think, I think again, I think we're overthinking it. I think oh, yeah. you're, you're correct, and I think, I think maybe. He listed the Von Erichs because he didn't want people, you know, thinking that Mike and Chris should be in there and then not voting for them for that reason. I think he wanted to make it clear that it's, you know, those three. And I think there's less confusion about who Los Vianos are than who the Von Erichs are, maybe. True. It just, it just, you know, as I'm looking down the thing, it's just struck me as funny. Is there, do you have a pet cause for this as the way some people feel about Junkyard Dog and some of the British people feel about Big Daddy. Is there someone that you think every year 
is an automatic on your ballot but still hasn't made it that sort of makes you shake your fist in the sky? Um, I have one. But the first thing I'll say as far as Junkyard Dog goes, the people who strongly feel JYD should be in, they their reasons have merit. The people who swear up and down that JYD should absolutely not be in the Hall of Fame, their reasons have merit too. It's all about how much you weigh the, the that one intangible of, of cultural significance. Um, and the, 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 my cause celebra is another person who does have cultural significance, and that is Sputnik Monroe. Uh, in particular, I think you can't put JYD in for those reasons until Sputnik's in. If you get Sputnik in, then you can say, you know, that that is a significant enough intangible that we can now, you know, look at JYD and, and say he, you know, for the same reasons that Sputnik is in, he should be in. Sputnik also had a longer career of significance than, than JYD, although I think people really undervalue his JYD's WWF run in the late 80s. But in the case of Sputnik, it's a longer, more varied, you know, career. And I think he's, he's got a case. And I think that, that one intangible of uh, the significance of him desegregating the uh the auditorium in Memphis and in, in, you know and Memphis wrestling in general is worthy of of inclusion in the Hall of Fame. I agree, and I have voted for Sputnik in the past and probably will again this year. For me, the person I'm happy to see finally on here after me and probably many other people complaining is Roy Welch being. You know, in the non-performer category, who I think probably should have been in the inaugural class. But, you know, when you look, it's weird the the promoters that are and aren't in that who was initially put in in that first class and then who's slowly been added over the years. And to me, he seems like a no-brainer from the beginning, but I'm glad that he's finally on there now, and I hope that he gets in this year. Yeah, and, you know, it's one of those, because of the region regionalness or regionality or whatever the proper term is of wrestling, it's difficult. And, and you know, the, the same was the case for many years with Don Owen, because, he you know, he had his very small fiefdom in one corner of the country. A lot of people felt that wasn't enough. And now, you know, we're going to, we perhaps will see that we'll see the same, you know, debate discussion with Welsh. But, you know, the other thing I ask people is, do you think the number of people in the Observer Hall of Fame is appropriate and that it's fairly representative of different time periods? Because if you do, then for anyone who you think should be in and should have been in a long time ago, you need to name me at least two people that are in that should that that he has a stronger case for. And that's the holdup for me with Junkyard Dog is if we think the number of wrestlers from JYD's era that are in the Observer Hall of Fame is accurate, the only person I can see that's in there that JYD has a stronger case than is Michael Hayes. And the only reason Hayes is in is because of that weird tag team delineation. And, and I accept why the Freebirds are in. And I'm not arguing it. Just saying, if you take each wrestler's career as a whole for their own case, Gordy is in 
not only for the Freebirds, but for what he did in Japan. Buddy is in, not only for the Freebirds, but also for the Hollywood Blondes. Michael Hayes, all of a sudden, uh, he doesn't have that strong a case when you look at you know him as a person, as an individual. I agree, and that's the sort of interesting thing about all the versions of wrestling's halls of fame is, you know, what's the criteria? You know, there are probably just as many people that I roll my eyes at for the Observer Hall of Fame as I do for the WWF Hall of Fame, even though, you know, the WWF Hall of Fame is done for drastically different reasons than Dave's Hall of Fame or the Waterloo Hall of Fame has different criteria than wherever the one that was in Texas that I'm not sure where it is now has. You know, they're all different. So Right. And, and such so much of the criteria, like one of the big things was attendance for Meltzers for the Observer Hall of Fame was, you know, has a track record of drawing attendance. We don't have attendance for so many territories for so many times. And it's like saying home runs are an important, you know, uh, criteria to be in the Baseball Hall of Fame. But we only have we don't have it for the National League from 1960 through 1980. And we only have it for the American League West when they have uh, intra-league play, uh, except in September. Uh, we just don't have enough attendance figures. And we focus on what they drew in Montreal, what they drew at the Superdome, what they drew in the Garden. What I want to know, and this particularly in the case of Junkyard Dog, is what he meant in Greenwood, Mississippi, and Homa, Louisiana, and all these other towns, Baton Rouge. Did he significantly increase attendance in those towns when he was on the card versus when he wasn't on the card? Or did he have no effect on it whatsoever? And I, I think that information might help convince people, you know, might actually change some people's opinions on dog. People who swear he's a shoo-in to be in there, if we found out that aside from New Orleans, every other town was down 15%, now do you feel the same way? Or for someone who thinks he shouldn't be in, if we had evidence from the rest of the territory that showed he increased attendance 15%, 20%, in all those towns, does that change their mind? But we'll, we don't have that info, so we'll never know. And as we've said a couple of times during this, you know, are attendance figures legit? Like, would we put the same amount of weight on home runs if we thought the Elias Sports Bureau was unreliable? And it's like, well, you know how we said, you know, Babe Ruth hit 60. Well, it turns out, he really only hit 45, and a couple times they gave him extra home runs to make him look better. Uh, right, and so that's a matter of where we get those attendance figures from. And in the case of the major cities, and what's in the case of places like New York, Illinois, and California, because those were, were all pretty legit commission states, I think the promoters can't fudge the numbers, or you know, or if they can, they can only undersell them. If there's skim going on, they're going to have to underreport. But they can't, and the newspapers say 8,000, yet they file taxes based on an attendance of 7,000 because the state's going to come after them. And enough other states had commissions that paid attention to this sort of thing that I don't think you can get away with over-reporting attendance. It's when you read articles, you know, written by the wrestlers that said, oh, every night was a sellout, we always drew 10,000 here. That's different than a, a, 
a newspaper report the day after the show that says attendance was 6,224. And even then, we know now that tickets sold and attendance aren't necessarily the same thing in real sports. So those numbers you have to take with a grain of salt, too. Yeah, so, again, it, it's it's tough. We're, we're dealing with incomplete and inaccurate information, and that's one of the main reasons I started charting the territories was to try and get more info and to uh, take what's already out there and give it the sniff test. Is it correct or is it not? True. Al, I want to thank you very much for doing the show again today. Um, people can listen to Charting the Territories uh, once a month, um, definitely buy the book. Uh, anything else you want to mention before you go? Uh, no, just that the book is available worldwide on Amazon, uh, or you can go to chartingtheterritories.com. And if you live in the contiguous United States, uh, you can get an autographed edition of the book from me directly. Uh, so chartingtheterritories.com. Uh, as you mentioned, the podcast comes out the fourth Thursday of every month. And you can follow me on Twitter at Al Getz Wrestling. That's Al G-E-T-Z Wrestling. And you know why, Mark? Because no one gets wrestling like Al gets gets wrestling. I see what you did there. <laughs> so, yeah, Charting the Territories presents the 1971 to 1973 Leroy McGurk, Oklahoma, Louisiana Wrestling Almanac on sale at Amazon and at chartingtheterritories.com. And one thing I will say, I do love the gimmick of the cover where the date is written in over a piece of tape. So presumably it helps the for future trade dresses when that's all you have to change. And you can thank you can thank John Boucher for that. Well although future editions might have a very slightly different map because the territorial bounds did change slightly over time. But yeah, that was one of I think five different suggestions for the year. Uh, because I told John uh, that I wanted the year to to stand out because it was going to be a thing that changed in future editions. And he sent me five ideas. And once I saw this one with the tape, I was like, yep, that's the one. That's perfect. Uh, he did. He actually took my original logo, which was designed by a guy local to me in Georgia, and he sort of reworked it for this book and, and did a great job with it. Cool. Al, thanks very much for your time. And we will talk to everybody next time.